Romans 15, 7, the first verse in the paragraph before us. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here, the word of the Lord. Maybe it's an expression of Midwestern values, or maybe it is an expression of old school hospitality, or maybe a kind of decoration that tends to be a little country. Uh, It's about warmth, it's about home. Uh, There are porch signs which welcome people. Uh, Maybe uh, a cynic or the mayor of Milwaukee, Wisconsin would call it Cracker Barrel Life, which um, um, I think is okay. Because of the amount of these welcome signs that are showing up on people's porches, there has developed a series of uh, signs pushing back a little bit poking fun at this, and here are four of them this morning. We don't have a welcome mat because we are not liars. Here's another one. Go away. Go on. Get. It stands in such contradistinction to welcome, you know, come in, make yourself at home. Here's another one. Welcome-ish. Depends on who you are and how long you stay. Gather somewhere else. (laughs) Now, do you realize, by the way, this is a sidebar, a little bit off topic, but do you realize whether it's emblazoned on a poster or not, that every church has a welcome sign at their place. What is it like to be welcomed at Calvary? I mean, ought we put up one of those cynical signs? Or ought we put up a sign about a most generous welcome, including pilgrims in this good way following Jesus with a desire to encourage them? If we want to understand the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ given to us in the gift of righteousness in belief, we need to understand that Jesus came and opened the door to relate to God with the most incredible welcome sign ever posted. I am the door. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, in coming to Christ, in believing in God's servant son, Jesus, we come to have hope, peace, and life. We come actually, and if we're not attentive to it, we'll miss it, to the last paragraph in Paul's theological argument about the gift of righteousness that comes in believing about his explanation of the gospel that he's been on since Romans chapter 1. Now, of course, for several more verses in 
Chapter 15, he'll talk about his plans and wants them to understand his desire to come and be with them in person in Rome. Then in chapter 16, he greets what will seem like half of the people who are living in Rome at that time, but it has a purpose and we'll go through each verse. But actually, he puts a bow on the package of his argument explaining the gospel of the grace of God, the gift of righteousness that we are given when we believe. He ends that argument in this paragraph that is before us. <coughs> Excuse me. It would be like being at Yosemite National Park before El Capitan, the, the, the granite face of the iconic mountain where the water comes over and there. And, and it would be, um, you get up one morning and you look, and some guy is free climbing El Capitan. Maybe you've seen the National Geographic documentary on the guy who did it. It's crazy. But you're there, and then somebody else gets there, and we're all watching and finally, after hours, he gets to the top and he stands up and we marvel at what he accomplished. And we look at each other and say, he did it. He did it. And it was awesome. We couldn't believe what he did. That's what Paul's doing here. But he's not looking at some human accomplishment. He's marveling at what God accomplished in his servant son, Jesus. And we look around in these seven verses and say, he did it, he did it, and oh my, what he accomplished. And he celebrates what he accomplished with some quotes from the Old Testament and ties everything together in the book, in these verses. If we're not alert to it, we'll miss it. Say, well, that's about X or Y. No, we're going to miss this summing explanation. So let's give ourselves to it with all of our might. Romans 15, 7 through 13. That's the next paragraph. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And, I, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope here, the word of the Lord. I want to go two different directions this morning. One, I want to look at this central imperative, this one command that he lays out in verse 7. We need to look at this welcome. This is going to be the whole theme 
from chapter 14 where we have been. Remember verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Fast forward to 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Hear the word of the Lord, arguing that to embrace the gospel is to embrace a new way of life in which we welcome one another and accept one another and love one another, notwithstanding our sinful selves. Remember the example, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now in the second uh, part of this message, we'll look at what God actually accomplished in Christ. There's a reason why we'll stand and say, he did it. He did it. That's amazing what he did. Because what is described here is something that only God can do and what he only could accomplish. So first, we follow Jesus as we serve each other by welcoming them as family. The new paragraph starts in verse 7. The one imperative is welcome them. Again, the whole theme of chapter 14. Welcome one another. Notice Christ is the example. Look back up to 15.3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. He selflessly gave himself to the cross, took our reproach so that we could be forgiven. And in forgiving us, welcomes outsiders to be insiders with God. Sinful insiders brought in by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now verse 8, Christ was a servant. We remember Mark 10, 45, uh, the Son of Man has come not to be saved, but, but, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many. He came to be a servant. And the way he served us is he laid down his life so that we could be welcomed. And this word welcome is a word that means at its heart include in one's circle. Now of all circles we want to be included in, is not it true that we want to be included in God's circle? And now the tragedy is, in our sin, and we've all sinned in thought, word, or deed, we are excluded from such a circle because God is holy. But God in Christ made a way for us to be included, to be accepted, to be included in the circle. To, the word means to be accepted into one's home, to be accepted into one's society. God acted in Christ to welcome us into his family. As a servant, the welcome cost him everything to bring us in. And he was willing to offer it. That's what Good Friday is about. Christ became a servant. Verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant. Gave up his life in a God-pleasing sacrifice to bring us in. Now God acted to welcome us so the question before us this morning is, have we accepted 
Jesus Christ into our lives through his generous invitation to be welcome and to come. How could it be that God became man to offer himself to bring us in, estranged as we are in our sin, and we would pay God no attention and be found unresponsive to him? Then this becomes the example for us, how to treat other people. If God welcomed us, notwithstanding our sin, which he forgave as we believed in Jesus, if God welcomed us, notwithstanding our sin, into his family, then we ought be welcoming each other. Kent Hughes said, he accepted us with our many sins, prejudices, and innumerable blind spots. He accepted us with our psychological shortcomings and cultural naivete. He accepted us with our provincialisms. He accepted us with our stubbornness. This is how we are to accept one another. Which seeking to be authentic, isn't it fair to stop right now and just ask, do we have any issues with anybody in the room? Is there anyone we'd just rather not meet in the aisle and have to feign some greeting that is supposed to be represented as pleasant? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Let's be a church full of generous welcome to others. That's just what we get in Jesus Christ, a generous welcome. Generous welcome to Doug Ruscher this morning, first Sunday back since surgery. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Number two, God accomplished his great plan to save humanity by bringing us together. That's going to be a key word, together in believing in Jesus. Look at verse 9. In order that the Gentiles, what? The Gentiles, with the Jewish people that God brought in in Christ, might glorify God for his mercy. Now notice the words that are used. Look back up to verse 5. Grant that you live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may be one voice and glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Harmony, together, one voice, circumcised, that would be Jewish people, Gentiles, People who could not be more radically different in Christ are brought together. Don't miss the emphasis. What is God doing? I mean, if, if we're watching God do something and he is accomplishing it, what has been accomplished? God has acted in Christ to bring us together. We live in a fractured world. Christ is not the divider in chief. God acted in Christ to bring together Jew and Gentile and all in him. Now we've struck out time and again and we continue to do so. The world, how could it be much more fractured and divided and separated than it is today? 
notwithstanding the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations. I mean, we've tried to put together all these things, not even the Davos Economic Forum, where cool people go in the wintertime in the ski chalets and talk about how to heal everybody's problems. They're still talking, and we're still divided. We're still in need of someone to bring us together. Enter Bethlehem. Experience the glory of Good Friday. Hang around for the empty tomb on Easter morning. The raw materials of how God acted to bring us together. Now let's think in three different directions regarding Christ's coming. First, Christ's coming confirmed that God keeps his promises to his own. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Who's that? That's Jewish people. That's Abraham's children. Abraham was the one who received the promises from God. The land will be yours forever. Your seed will be blessed. And your nation will bless the world. Land, seed, blessing. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And so when Jesus comes as a son of Abraham, as a son of David, you remember Matthew, a gospel written to the Jewish people, begins the genealogy with Abraham. Because Jesus came from Abraham. Indeed, Isaiah said that one will spring from Jesse's line, somebody out of the line, the root of David, will come. Jesse's son, David, One of his sons is coming. His coming will bring this great salvation about. So when Jesus came, everybody waiting on the promises to Abraham concluded, you know what? God keeps his promises. God delivers on what he says he will do. As Jesus came, he fulfilled the promises. So that in the fulfillment of the promises, Jewish people had every earnest confidence in the fact that they could trust the Lord. That's what his coming brought. To show God's truthfulness. God does not lie. God's a promise keeper. He confirms the promises given to the patriarchs. You know, he wasn't kidding when he promised Abraham that his son would come to rule. But it also has implications for Gentiles, non-Jewish people, in order that they might glorify God. Before we get there, let's just think about that Jewish nation. Remember when Jesus, in describing his ministry and in sending his disciples out the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, do you remember the instructions? Matthew 10, 6, go nowhere among the Gentiles. And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He first comes to Abraham's children. And remember, in Romans 2.10, Paul has said the gospel is for the Jew first, and then to the Greek, then to the Gentiles. So this is the order. God is worthy of our trust. He's a promise keeper, a God who cannot lie. 
has levied promises that he keeps and we can hold on to them. God is worthy of our trust. The coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise. It settles it. We can now trust him. I grew up in a smaller community, 75,000 in the city, 75,000 in the county, 150,000 in Clark County, Ohio, where Springfield, Ohio is. You had businessmen who'd cultivated faithfulness there for years. And my dad would know them and we would secure them to sort through problems we were having at the house as I was growing up. And there's one particular guy that he used to always call for all HVAC problems. Heating and air conditioning problems, we'll call Bob Clayton. And the reason he called Bob was because of Bob's integrity. And it was such that my dad inherently trusted him. And if he came and said, Jack, you need the whole deal replaced. You, you need a whole new furnace and uh, air con condensing unit for your air conditioner, the whole thing. Dad, dad would not think anything of it. He would not get another opinion. He had so much trust in him because of a track record of proving himself to be true that it was just like, okay, is that what we need? That's what we'll do. That's what we need, that's what we'll do. And he inherently trusted him. In the same way, Paul's making the argument that in the gospel and the coming of Jesus, God has proved to be faithful and to have integrity, to be worthy of our trust. You say, Eric, I'm trusting in the Lord this morning. This is not a pipe dream. You are trusting in one who cannot lie, who's levied the promise and who will and has delivered. So Christ's coming confirmed that God keeps promises to his own. Now secondly, notice this. Christ's coming proved he mercifully reaches for those outside to bring them in. This is verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 and four quotes from the Old Testament. Where Paul is saying, if we would have been reading the Old Testament all along, we would have understood that to know Jesus Christ is not some exclusive club of the people of God who inherit the promises to Abraham, but Jesus Christ came as a savior of the whole earth. And Jew and Gentile alike can come into him. In fact, people he didn't give the promises to the Gentiles, are brought in. And so their coming in becomes, and that's us, that becomes a high monument to his mercy in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. Why? For his mercy. No one made them any promises. God didn't promise them. In fact, what they were owed just like us because of our sin and God's holiness is God's righteous judgment. But you remember that mercy keeps us from what we are owed. It keeps us from what we deserved. And in including every Gentile who would embrace Jesus Christ as Savior in God's family, now with the people of God, they in particular rise up and they glorify God for his mercy. We are here, not because we belong. We are here, not because God promised to our forefathers. No, we are here because God is merciful. And we glorify God in recognizing his mercy in our inclusion in his family. It's simply because he's merciful. 
John Stott calls the Gentiles his uncovenanted people who receive uncovenantal mercy. That's the kind of mercy we receive, and it's available to us today. God be praised. Now, Warren Wiersbe has noted a progression in these four quotes from the Old Testament. First, there is the presence of the people of God, Jewish people who've received Christ as Savior. They begin to praise the Lord in front of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are observing that Jewish people who inherit the promises, recognize him as true, are praising the Lord. But notice then, the Gentiles who have received Christ join in. The second quote, verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Remember in Acts 15, they were trying to figure out, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ? And they met together, prayed together, thought about it, and concluded, here's what we'll do. We'll include them in the people of God. Who are we to think that somehow we need some add-on with all of them need to be circumcised as a sign of faithfulness to the old covenant? No, we include them. It's based upon the promise. So simply put, God is merciful. And his actions among the Gentile world proves it. Rescue the perishing. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Indeed. Now you got to remember, look at verses 15 and 16, and we'll get there next week. Uh, Paul had a unique kind of ministry. He was Jewish. In fact, he was a Jew of Jew, educated in the rabbinical school of Gamaliel. Verses 15 and 16, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Paul, what did God's grace give you in ministry? Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. This Jewish man believing in Jesus was given a ministry to the Gentile world. You'll remember Acts 13. They began to pray, Lord, what do we do now? Let's separate Paul and Barnabas and let's send them out. And the gospel starts to get out to the non-Jewish world from Antioch in Acts chapter 13. So first, Jewish people listen to God. I mean, Gentile people listen to God being praised by his Jewish converts. Then secondly, verse 10, they praised him with Jews. Then thirdly, they praised God on their own. Praise the Lord, verse 11, all you Gentiles, and let all the people, Jew and Gentile alike, extol him. Now, by the way, the catalyst for this progression was that the people of God, these Jewish converts to Christ, were living among and in close enough relational proximity with godless, pagan, Gentile people that as their life became a monument to praising God for the faithfulness of his promise, they began to take notice. And they were affected by a life of praise that they saw among them. And a few of them began then to place their faith in Christ. And they came among them. And then they, th- th- this movement spread and Paul chronicles it here. You get to verse 10. 
Rejoice, O Gentiles, with the people. It's an imperative, a command. Be glad. Rejoice. And then you anticipate what is coming in the consummation of all things. When this root out of Jesse's line, one of David's sons, Jesus Christ, will come. And when he comes, his rule will encompass Gentile, godless, pagan people who by the grace of God have been brought in in repentance and faith to God's family. And he'll rule over them as well. That's what he describes in verse 12. Now, don't forget who the Gentiles are. Uh, For a Jewish person, this word that shows up in the text is actually a derogatory term for others. It was an insulting term. The Gentiles were, and and the closest equivalent would be the word pagan, uh, a, a godless person, a person with no interest in God, no pursuit of God, absent of God in his life. This is who God has included in his family. I mean, you talk about the quintessential outsider. It's the pagan, the godless, the Gentile. From among them, the very people that God began to work to open their hearts to come to believe in Jesus. And in believing, come to merge and join in, yes, harmony, in unity, in one voice, in togetherness. What can bring this fractured world together? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It brings in diverse people who for any other reason would not be together were it not for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's a recipe for unity. The renegade outsiders are brought in. By the way, you say, Eric, I, I, I feel like an outsider with God. I want you to know if you do, you feel just like the Gentiles. You feel just like the godless, just like the pagans who in Christ, because of his mercy, were brought in. Now let's ponder verse 13 before we leave this morning. Christ's coming confirmed that God keeps his promises to his own. Christ's coming proved that he mercifully reaches for those outside to bring them in. Verse 13, Christ's coming has brought us to robust hope with its accompanying peace and joy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Don't forget where the Gentile world and all of us are before Christmas came and before we received Christ as Savior. Here's how Paul describes where we are before we come to know Jesus Christ. And notice our proximity to hope or our lack of proximity to hope. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Eric, where were we before we came to know Christ as Savior? We were at a place without hope. Now that's a long way from Romans 15, 13, where the God of hope 
has filled us in an abounding way with hope and joy and peace. It's a hopeless place to be apart from Jesus Christ. Are you there this morning? Has God brought you here to day one begin with Jesus as you would trust him in? Eric, I need that hope. It's available to you in Jesus. Eric, I need a merciful embrace and inclusion. It's available to you in Jesus Christ. Eric, I have a past that's imperfect. So do I. It's resolved in the God-satisfying death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come to this hope. Embrace this life offered in him. Now notice the name for God in verse 13. It's not just anyone. The name of the a Lord is a strong tower where the righteous run in and are safe. He is called the God of hope. The God of hope. To have him is to have hope. To embrace Christ is to embrace hope. An unceasing well, an unceasing well spring, an unceasing provision of eternal hope, the God of hope. Hope finds its source in God. I love the verse of an old hymn we used to sing, although when we sang it, we would never sing this verse. I'm now possessed by a hope that is steadfast and sure since Jesus came into my heart. The lyricist marks out a spot where hope got its beginning and birth, and it came when we received Jesus Christ as Savior. We are then brought unto hope. Hope is embodied in our Savior. Now watch hope's career in chapter 15. Let's start with verse 4. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture, what will our endurance, what will the ceaseless reminder and encouragement from the Scripture bring to us that we might have, here it is, its first appearance in chapter 15, hope. That we might have hope. Look at verse 12. Again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles. There it is again, hope. Now hope double dips in verse 13. May the God of hope, now notice that verb, fill you. We're going to come back and talk about that word, fill. May the God of hope fill you with all joy, all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in, here it is again, hope. Hope has quite a run in chapter 15. Verse 13, that you might abound in hope. Now what's interesting is that the word, the verb fill at the beginning of verse 13 and the word abound at the end of verse 13 have the same stem. 
This stem means fill. That's why it's translated fill. But when you get to that word abound, it throws a prefix on. It's like fill on steroids. Uh, above fill. And the word bespeaks an abounding, cascading source of hope that is ceaseless. Have you ever watched someone fill a cup at a dispenser in which they depressed the uh, little toggle and, and then they start talking to somebody and they forgot what they were doing, you know, and oh yeah, and that's just, and you look up and they're just, just, just pouring the fluid all down the sides of the cup. Now that's bad if it happens if you're at 7-Eleven, but it's really great to conceive of what is true that as we come to Jesus Christ, it is a ceaseless outpouring of hope. Truly in the spirit of Psalm 23, our cup runs over and keeps running over and keeps on and on and on running over it's not only may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing but so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in a cascading way that is a ceaseless provision from God you may abound abound in what abound in this hope it's the verb that's used, this abound, of uh, when Jesus fed the 4,000 in Matthew 15, he said, go around and collect what is abounded, what is left over. And all that was left over after everyone was satisfied. These are the leftovers after complete satiation for the whole crowd, abounding. God has provisions of hope for us at those lengths. And Paul said that this brings us to praise our Lord. Andy loves to plant annual flowers, and they're always really pretty. And her flowers are the envy of the neighbors, and they walk around and talk about her flowers. But anyway, when the, there's the right amount of shade and sun, impatience do really well, and their hue stays vivid. And years ago, we used to walk, and we walked down this street, and this lady had these impatience that were killers. I mean, they're just fantastic. And we couldn't figure out, you know, where did she buy those? What's her secret? How does, how, 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 how does, how does she do it? So we just went up and knocked on her door one day. We said, man, we, we have an odd question. How do you do that? Oh, she said, it's, it, it's easy. Just every little bit in the summer, I whip this elixir of miracle Grow, and I just spray it over the top of them. And when I do, they just emerge, and they go, and they'll look like this. So we start doing that. It wasn't too long before Andy's impatience ate the front of our house because, I mean, they're, they're just super abounding. And what happened, satiated with that fertilizer, it kept their tank full and productive and lush and hues vivid. That's what Paul's getting at. And he is arguing that the God of hope wants to fill us with such an abounding hope. But that's not all. An abounding joy and an abounding peace because of who he is and what God has accomplished in Christ. Back to El Capitan, we stand and, and we can't believe what God has accomplished in bringing disparate parties together who for no other reason would even know each other and who historically have been at each other's throats but in Christ are forgiven and brought into a family, Jew and Gentile alike together, 
with hearts abounding in hope and joy and peace. And Paul is saying, that's what God accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the gospel of grace. Oh, this passage arrives right on time for us here at Calvary. All of us hurt this week. For Mark and Roxena Hanks and Jordan and Sarah, their son and daughter-in-law, and Jet and Ellie, their grandchildren, Jordan and Sarah's children. Mark and Roxena's son, Ben's wife, Kara, went home to heaven last Saturday night in a carbon monoxide poisoning. Dear Kara, mother of two, was 44 years old. So many connections in our church, in our school. Quite frankly, it's been a dark week. Enter this passage extolling the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enter this passage celebrating what God accomplished in Christ. The only consolation in the midst of this tragic week is the power of the Holy Spirit bringing us to abound in hope. Indeed, even in a week like this, our cups can run over, overly supplied with hope and peace and joy and rest. Oh, the glory of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grant, Lord, that your hope would abound with your peace and that we would be models, not of bitterness or disappointment or mad at life, models of people of hope who have found in Jesus all that we need for life and godliness. Thank you for your great plan of salvation, bringing godless pagans together with your people promised as Abraham's children who were awakened to their need of Abraham's son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We love you. We need you. We're desperate for this hope. And we're grateful that it's available in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray.